Hermione Granger and the Silent Country. From There Is Nothing to Fear by Santissi Day. Read by Sam Gabriel. Based on the works of J.K. Rowling. Chapter 15 Make a Fire. And now, said Griffiths, the first task. Hermione heard a sound behind her like a sharp hiss and turns to face it. A moment later she realized that Fleur and Victor had turned as well, and everyone in the stands seemed to be sitting at attention. As they watched, a small rectangular section of the block receded and slid away to reveal a darkness that was more absolute than the black granite of its walls. "'You can go ahead now,' Griffith said softly, almost in a whisper, but nobody moved at first. Hermione wondered, very briefly, whether it might be all right to do nothing and forfeit, if Fleur was going to do the same. But then she thought of Riddle, and her resolve heartened. She hadn't been put here to die.' Whatever was going to happen at the first task, she would live through it. Hermione wasn't going to run from Riddle, not here and now. There was no good reason to run, and besides, the raw October's threat to Beaubaton still hung in the air like a guillotine. Hermione took a step forward, and then another, each getting easier than the last. Fleur and Victor were there as well, walking almost in lockstep with her. As they approached, the gap in the block widened enough that it could admit all three of them together. There was no telling what would be on the other side of that darkness, and walking through it felt like nothing at all. One moment there was a wall of night before her, like somebody had made a large veil out of Riddle's cloak, and in the next moment she had crossed through it, and the arena lay before her. The arena, such as it was, had been arranged in a series of concentric circles, divided into four colored quadrants, blue, green, red, and white. At the center was a triangular table— made of reddish-black leadwood and covered in an assortment of potioneering equipment, alembics and bundling dishes, tritoriums and copper worms. Hovering above the very center of the table was an hourglass, filled with black sand, and here and there throughout the arena were lanterns lit with bluebell flames. Together, walking between the blue and green quadrants, they approached the table, and there was a nameplate there, reading Victor Crumb, and a marblewood box beside it, in front of the box was a note. Do not open until instructed. Hermione split away from Fleur, walking along the left side of the table to the next station. Her nameplate was there, but choosing correctly didn't make her feel any better. It had only been fifty-fifty odds. A few seconds after Fleur reached the table's final station, the door shut tight, and when Hermione looked back, she couldn't tell where the wall ended and the door began. Karkaroff's voice rippled out from the walls around them. "'The champions may open their boxes.' "'The hourglass rotated in the air and began to pour. "'Victor was the first to open his box "'and retrieved a thick glass vial with amber fluid "'broken with harsh yellow streaks. "'A dark beetle floated on the surface, "'belly up, whole and motionless. "'Fleurs was pinkish, with black spots "'that seemed to dance in the solution "'like cows in a tornado as she gently shook it. Hermione raised her own vial up to the light. The potion was dark green and opaque, the color of kale or spinach. And there wasn't much that she could gather from that alone, of course, so she swished it around a little, gently, of course, because Coca-Cola had taught Hermione the dangers of shaken liquids long before she'd ever heard of magic. 
It moved slowly and with difficulty, more like slime than a soft drink. She twisted off the cork and brought the vial to her nose. It smelled pungent and salty, a little like aged cheese, and her nose congested a little. Properties of earth and water, probably. When Hermione stuck a needle in the potion, the potion stuck to it, like natto or mucus. Yes, there was definitely a phlegmatic property. Fleur made a distressed sound, and Hermione looked up just in time to see Victor draw a paring knife across the meat of his upper arm. What? Victor, what are you doing? Hermione asked. Victor set down the knife and pressed a ramekin-looking sort of bowl against the wound. There is more that we can do than look and sniff, he said. Victor reached across the table and set the bowl near Hermione's side, then grabbed another. And we should not need very much. What are you waiting for? Victor asked as he gave the second bowl to Fleur. Right, the sand was still pouring. Carefully, Hermione filled a dropper with nine minims of the potion, leaving the tenth alone in case her dropper was somehow inaccurate, and squeezed it over the bowl. One drop fell, maybe three minims worth, and where it touched the blood, it seemed to congeal, turning dark and thick, growing and leaving wispy filaments as it sunk to the bottom. Hermione fished it out with a spoon and looked at it under the clear light of a bluebell lantern. Then Hermione realized that it was the blood that had changed, not the potion. She looked down at the clot, then back at the dropper, which she had set on the table beside her vial. There were a few things that Hermione could think of right away that might congeal blood, but which of them was it? Embolic elixir might have similar properties to an improperly prepared bruisewort balm, but they worked on totally different principles. Congealing potion worked a lot like embolic elixir, but the smell was wrong. Earlier, Hermione had passed a silver basin of clear water in the blue quadrant, and now she went back there with a bucket from the table. After filling it near to the brim, she returned, filled a cup with some of the water, then levitated the rest of it over to Victor, who took some and passed the rest to Fleur. The water-making spell would have been simple to perform, but some potions were sensitive to even a little bit of magic, which was why brewers typically used only whatever spells were absolutely essential and didn't say, enchant the knives to do the slicing and pressing for them. Now that the potion was complete, it would probably be stable, but Hermione didn't yet know what she was dealing with, and there were some potions which, even at this stage, could still be disrupted by conjured water. In a second cup, Hermione poured the barest amount of water, just enough to cover its bottom, and then she sacrificed a second drop of the potion to her experiment and observed it carefully. Nothing happened immediately, and sand continued to pour as she waited to confirm, but the potion and water didn't react to each other. But what did that have to do with the properties of water in particular? Or did the potion only react to living matter? Victor's blood had been warm, and blood was elementally hot, too, while the water was lukewarm or cold by the same measure. There was probably only another drop left for Hermione to test, or two if she were lucky. Remembering a potion, or even its properties, was a very different matter from reverse engineering one by its effects, let alone having the sort of intuition that would help her to get really inventive. Hermione glanced up at the others, but they were focused on their own work. Fleur had reduced some of her potion to a tiny bit of soft blue powder, and Victor had applied a strip of it to his arm just below the place where he had cut himself. The skin was rippling. The alarm went off, blaring all around her. "'Set down your tools,' Kakarov said, "'and prepare to drink in three, two, one. Drink!' 
Hermione sipped once and tried not to gag on the foul taste, a sort of savory, rotting flavor. She was tempted to toss the rest of it to the back of her throat and get things over quickly, but the taste was as important as any other clue to the potion's identity, so she let it run into her mouth. Either half of the potion stuck to her tongue and throat as it went down, or that was just some sort of side effect, like a textural aftertaste. The potion seems to have flowed out of the vial easily enough, but that could be a consequence of how it affected, or didn't affect, glass and other non-living materials. Hermione swallowed and swallowed again, but the sensation didn't go away. Had it been a little harder to swallow that second time? Something tingled at the back of her throat, and for a moment Hermione was seized by the worry that her throat was going to close up, but just as she decided that it was all in her head, she felt a kind of itchy feeling in her right arm. She ignored the itch, willing herself not to get caught up in phantom pains and hypochondria, and cast a hot air charm, aiming at the bottom of the glass while being careful not to let the air mix with the water. Once the water had warmed up a little, Hermione added the other water she'd poured out, and the drop of potion that was still in it. After twenty seconds, the potion appeared to do nothing, so she set the glass aside. While Hermione worked, the itchiness had turned to soreness, and when she pulled up the sleeve of her robe, she saw that her arm was beginning to swell and take on a blue tinge. "'Hermione, are you all right?' Fleur asked from across the table. Hermione nodded, but Fleur persisted. "'Is something wrong with your arm?' As she flattened her sleeve, Hermione shook her head and put on her best smile. "'Just itchy,' she said. "'Was it her imagination, or was the ache getting worse?' "'Figured out what your potion is yet?' Fleur coughed, and a blue rose petal flew out of her mouth. "'I have a few ideas,' she replied grimly. "'And how are you doing?' "'Just fine,' Hermione said. She forced herself to smile and ignore the pain in her arm. It wouldn't do them or her any good if she distracted Fleur and Victor. Besides, there were healers present on the other side of the door. However bad it got, she wouldn't be in any kind of real danger. Hermione eyed the last of her sample and got thinking about what she knew. The potion reacted to blood, but seemingly not to water, which suggested that elemental heat was an important factor, or at least that actual heat wasn't. If she tested it against a biological substance, something fluid, so that it could condense, then she could determine whether it reacted to more than just blood, but if, on the other hand, the potion reacted to many other things besides water, then that would also be useful. The trouble was that the drop which she deposited in the water might have been denaturalized at some point, especially if some quality of water like coolness or bluntness were crucial to the antidote so she had no more than three drops, and potentially as few as one to work with. As Hermione deliberated, an ache seemed to develop in her right leg, while the pain in her arm grew strong enough that she felt a need to stretch and move it around. That wasn't a terribly good development, but it did settle Hermione's mind for her. What kind of humor could she test it on, though? Briefly, Hermione considered chopping off just a bit of the little finger of her left hand and blending it into a slurry, but that was insane. Even if she could technically grow it back, bile would be good, but she'd have to either cut a hole in her body, which was not happening, or vomit, which might disqualify her if the potion were still in her stomach and was supposed to remain active. Besides, just the thought of Haywood taking her place in the second task was enough to turn Hermione's stomach. "'I'm about to have a bit of a reaction,' Hermione said, and she summoned her bucket from Fleur's end of the table. "'This is all part of the plan, so please don't mind me.' 
With that warning provided, Hermione fetched a long spoon and slowly, with great care, stuck it down her throat. Her first attempt sent it down her esophagus, which nearly made her sick again, and on the second attempt she flinched, but finally she found her windpipe and stuck the spoon as far as she could make it go. The consequence was intense pain and the worst coughing fit of her life, bad enough that she lost sight of how her limbs felt and she couldn't remember dropping the spoon. It was hard enough just to think about getting into position over the bucket, but she managed, and she collected a decent amount of sputum for her trouble. "'I said not to mind me,' Hermione said in response to Fleur and Victor's sounds of worry, once she could say anything at all. Hardly glancing away from the little bit of phlegm in her bucket, Hermione reached for a smaller spoon and transferred the phlegm to a ceramic bowl. She retrieved the dropper, dispensed the last of her potion into the phlegm, and waited. Even as the pain in her arm and leg continued to gnaw at her and her skin seemed to crawl over her bones, but nothing happened. Okay, what did that mean?' The potion reacted to blood, but not to water and not to phlegm. Admittedly, that was of a watery humor, but it was still a bodily fluid, and more practical than her bile. It was good, proper throat phlegm, too, not the mucus in her nose, so it was probably as close to elemental purity as she could hope to get under these circumstances. The only other option would have been to take some more blood, her own preferably, since Victor's had potentially been adulterated by his own potion— and separate it into humoric blood, anoterohyma, and its other components. But that would have required a centrifuge, which she didn't have, and which might explode on her if she magicked it herself and did something wrong, or time enough for the blood to coagulate in the vial, and she didn't have time to— Wait. Wait. Coagulate. Clot. Hermione felt a stab of panic as she considered that she might have taken an embolic elixir— the symptoms were certainly in line with what she might expect in that case, but then took a moment to calm herself. Dimitri's breathing exercises were good for something, at least. She still didn't know what it was, and there was a sample at her workstation that Hermione could test in order to have a better idea. When she reached for the cup that held Victor's blood, the blood quivered, and Hermione drew back her hand in startled horror. As she watched, a spider the size of a pea emerged from the bowl, thick and blood-stained, leaving needlepoint red marks as it scuttled across the table. Hermione stuck a glass stirring rod into the bowl, and when she lifted it out, the blood stuck like red silken threads, and small spiders crawled across it, their chitinous bodies gleaming red. When she reached for the cup that held Victor's blood, the blood quivered, and Hermione drew back her hand in startled horror. As she watched, a spider the size of a pea emerged from the bowl, slick and blood-stained, leaving needlepoint red marks as it scuttled across the table. Hermione stuck a glass stirring rod into the bowl, and when she lifted it out, the blood stuck like red silken threads, and small spiders crawled across it, their chitinous bodies gleaming red. So it definitely wasn't an embolic elixir, for all that certain symptoms were very similar. There were spiders in her body, taking their form from her blood and blocking things up just like a blood clot, like bloody fucking blood clots that moved together and spun webs in her arteries. She itched because that was how obstructions in the blood vessels worked, and because there were bloody spiders in her body. In fact, the more she thought about it, the more itchy she seemed to get, the more she seemed to feel like something was crawling beneath her skin— some of it was probably just in her head, but that thought didn't make her feel any better. 
Well, it could have been worse, Hermione tried to tell herself. She could have a phobia of spiders, rather than just be in danger of developing one right now. This could be an assassination attempt, rather than a competition monitored by professional healers. For that matter, Victor could have failed to have his brilliant, albeit mildly disturbing, idea, and Hermione could have spent a long time working on an antidote for embolic elixir rather than arachne's folly. There were some similar principles between the two, but there would have still been a lot of wasted effort, and it was quite plausible that Hermione wouldn't have had time for a second try. Okay, okay, so focusing on the bright side, and on the job to be done, Hermione could figure out what she really needed now. What did she need? A helpful vampire, maybe, since they tended to fix a lot of illnesses in the blood in the process of drinking it out of her body. Given the apparent dearth of vampires in the arena, her next best option was just a regular old antidote, which would require garlic juice, she was pretty sure, and willow bark, clover, and sunflowers. Garlic had properties of heat and dryness, so it would probably be in the fire quadrant. Was there anything else that she should get from there? Most of the ingredient list seemed more earthy and watery when Hermione thought about it. Sunflowers might be over there, and maybe dragon dung, but that was it. She was about to head over to the water quadrant when a sharp pain went through her arm like she'd been stabbed. It took effort not to yell out and make a scene, and that forced her to pause a moment and think. Fleur, do you know what you need yet? Yes, Fleur said, sweeping blue petals off her workstation and into a golden marcasite bowl. Then, understanding the reason behind Hermione's question, she added, I need three eel eyes from the water quadrant and some honey for making hydromel. I think that should be an ale. Could you be a dear and get them if you're headed over there? And what do you need? Garlic and sunflower petals and dragon dung if you see them. Victor! There were three champions and a quartet of quadrants. It was a shame the goblet hadn't picked a fourth person, but this wasn't the quad wizard tournament, and she and Victor were both just about on the periphery of water, but that also put Hermione next to air. Sparrow spleen! Thank you, Hermione. There were only three kinds of bird in the air quadrant, and sparrows were easily distinguished from the ravens and black parrots, so it was just a matter of hitting one with a stunning spell, easier said than done, since all the birds were fearful and flighty. That was all Hermione was willing to do, however, and she passed the whole sparrow on to Victor. "'You'll have to get the spleen yourself,' Hermione informed him, and she went back to collect Fleur's eels and honey. To Hermione's surprise, the only tricky thing about the eels was figuring out that they weren't to be found in any of water's pools— but had been smoked and stacked at a cabinet. Even plucking out their eyes wasn't that much trouble. She had a more difficult time with the bees, who were protective of their honey, and quite angry with Hermione for being near their hive, and too small and numerous for something like a stunning spell or freezing charm to be practical. After thinking about it for a moment, Hermione collected some bamboo from air, lit it with the fire-making charm, and directed the smoke in their direction. Hermione must have misunderstood something about the use of smoke on beehives, because instead of repelling the bees, it mostly just seemed to make them lethargic. That was good enough for her purposes, though. Wrapped from head to toe in transfigured hardened cloth, Hermione blasted the hive apart and waded over to collect some honey. She returned to the table, honey in hand, just in time to see one of Victor's eyes fall from its socket and roll across his workspace. "'Victor! He's nothing!' he exclaimed while he applied some kind of brown paste around his other eye. "'He's only Botin's breed. My eye will be better than new, maybe. Besides, I still have another,' Victor added with a wan smile, though he was clearly having some trouble keeping that statement true as the other eye squirmed and wiggled behind his fingers. 
By that time, Fleur had already rounded the preparation area, and, upon reaching Victor's station, she unwound a roll of spellotape and began to apply it around his eye. "'Your field of vision will be narrowed,' Fleur said. "'But at least you will have two hands again.' Her voice was hoarse. "'For the time being,' Victor said, sounding more cheerful than Hermione expected. "'Thank you, Fleur.' Fleur continued clockwise around the table until she reached Hermione and set down a small basket with garlic and sunflowers. "'I am sorry, but there is no dragon dung,' she told Hermione. "'That's fine. Victor, have you um, seen any dragon dung in the Earth Quadrant?' He shook his head. "'Only dragon bile. And I have not found a venomous tentacula, as Frere has requested, though it must surely be in this section.' By the time that Hermione had confirmed that there was no dung, dragon, or otherwise in either the air or water quadrants, Fleur and Victor had found that there were no flabberworms in their part of the arena, which were apparently rather important to the counterbrew that Fleur was hoping to make. The potion must be thickened, but several ingredients are very bombastic, he said, and he mimed an explosion and made a rumbly sort of noise in his throat. Do not like many other things, but flabberworm is neutral, does not interact with many things. "'If we're all missing something, and just one thing at that, then that must be intentional,' Hermione said. "'Is the whole thing futile? Are they just going to judge us on how close we get?' "'I do not think so,' Blair said. "'Floreau mucus is excellent for your purpose, Victor, but it is just the simple solution. Yes?' "'Is it—' <coughs> She coughed, and a chunk of rose petals flew out of her mouth, blue where they weren't bloody. "'Is it possible that you might just substitute it?' "'Maybe, but this would be complicated. "'Require many more ingredients.' "'But it could be done,' Fleur said. "'I'm not sure how we could substitute dragon dung, though,' Hermione said. "'Oh, that is simple, if this is the right idea, "'or principle is simple anyway,' Victor replied. "'What do you mean?' "'What is dung being?' Victor began. Body takes in matter, transfigures, in a sense, transfigures it to a useful substance with some left over. What is left we call dung. So what I need is something that that stands in for the digestive process, Hermione said half to herself, and her eyes went up. Digestion. We haven't talked about that in potions, really, but it's very important in alchemy, and in some more advanced potions work, for that matter, she said, as Victor nodded along. Some sort of matter subjected to a particular digestive process. Hermione trailed off as she considered the problem. Dragons were famous sheep and cattle eaters, but neither were present in the arena, not unless Victor had neglected to mention the presence of a miniature flock in the Earth Quadrant. Hermione had once read that Welsh greens were supposed to eat small animals, but sheep had been included in that list, so small must have been relative. We should determine what resources we have, Fleur said, interrupting Hermione's thoughts. It is one matter to complete an equation when anything might stand in for your unknowns, and another matter when you have a list of potential solutions. In place of infinite possibilities, you will have a limited set to examine. Right. If this is all intended, and they mean for us to actually finish our potions, then it must be possible to put together alternatives from what we have here, Hermione said. Cataloging the arena's ingredients was a painstaking progress, during which time everyone's symptoms continued to progress. Two of Victor's fingers had escaped him, alternately slithering away and hopping like crickets, and at one point his ear flapped off like a flesh-covered bat. 
Fleur was coughing more often and had stopped talking. A rosebud had grown into her mouth up from her throat. Hermione tried to cut it, but the stalk was hardy, and what was worse, Fleur screamed when she made the attempt. Writing with spelled smoke, Fleur explained that she could feel the stalk as though it were part of her body, so they left it alone, and Fleur managed the best she could. And there was no mistaking it, Hermione could definitely feel the spiders now. On her right arm, red spots had developed, itchy and hot and painful to touch and Hermione thought she had seen one quiver as though something were moving beneath her skin. Fleur's idea was still a winner, though it wasn't long before the three of them, looking over conjured copies of their lists and passing suggestions back and forth, were able to figure out what each of them required. In Hermione's case, most of the requirements were of a mineral nature, dragon's bile, yes, and what was left of the sparrow she had given Victor, but also gold Latin, phosphorus moralibus, oil of vitriol and a pinch of eventurine feldspar. Then it was just a matter of setting up her equipment so that the sparrow, sans spleen, could be digested as necessary. While she worked, Victor's eye rolled over to her station and stared at her. Hermione stared back, caught up a little in the grotesquerie of the situation and, for that matter, unexpected academic questions. The eye seemed aware, the pupil focusing and contracting on her movements, and Hermione couldn't help but wonder what manner of intelligence lay behind it, and what would happen to that mind when all of this was over. By that time, some of the spots on Hermione's arm had become angry boils, and Victor's left foot had abandoned both him and its shoe, so he had to get around on a hastily transfigured prosthetic. Fleur's head was at an angle, and her mouth was opened wide so as to pose no barrier to the blooming blue rose growing out of it. The stalk had thorns, and the thorns were stained with blood— she coughed, and another handful of blue flower petals was ejected from her throat. Fleur, are you are you well enough? Fleur twitched, nodding ever so slightly, then held up a stone tile, reading, Snails, please, water quadrant. While Hermione read her message, Victor brought over a bowl of mushrooms and rat brains, then took a yellow tomato in exchange. The snails required a sharp knife to pry off their beds, like they were clams, but that was nothing compared to the snake fangs that she had to get for Victor. It was a simple thing to check her list and remember in which pool of water she had seen a clay snake swimming, but that was the end of ease. Hermione cast a summoning charm, but got nothing for her trouble but a gallon of water on her clothes and arm and wand, so the snake must have been charmed against it. When she tried to catch the snake with a conjured net, it sliced the cords in a frenzy of action. Pain flared up in her arm again, the ticking of an agonizing clock, and so, cursing under her breath, Hermione reached in and grabbed the faux snake behind the head. It was quick, and the water made it slippery, so it squirmed in her grasp and slid away a little, enough to turn around and bite her, and the rest of its body wrapped around her arm, squeezing, crushing. Hermione almost let go. Instead, she withdrew her arm from the pool and slammed it and the snake into the rock wall that surrounded the pool, again and again until the snake's hold loosened. The snake had no fangs, only a mouthful of teeth like little knives, but she thought she knew what to do about that. On the way back to her workstation, Hermione crossed paths with something small and quick, wriggling and writhing and moving a little like a lobster. Her head hurt, her head hurt, and her vision was just a little bit blurry, and it wasn't until the thing was gone that she realized that it had been Victor's foot. Operating on her earlier hunch, Hermione cracked open the snake's head with a mortar, and yes, there it was, a little mesh bag of fangs where the brain ought to be. 
A couple of leeches had attached to her arm during its brief time in the water, and she needed those anyway, so after she gave the snake fangs to Victor, she passed the leeches onto the mortar too, carefully juicing them and straining the solids from the liquid. It was only after she finished with the leeches that Hermione realized what a mess her arm was, caked in blood from her thumb to about halfway up her forearm. Her blood didn't seem to be flowing very strongly anymore, but as Hermione rinsed up, the blood stuck together and clung to her arm like a cobweb, and she could feel little wriggling spiders caught in or forming out of the coagulating blood as she wiped her arm clean. Her arm looked fairly chewed up, but the wounds had already stopped bleeding. The spiders and their webs were at least good for one thing, so it didn't warrant concern at the moment. She could take care of it later. From there, it was as straightforward as anything in this competition could be. The sparrow continued to digest in its network of glass apparata, and in the meantime she worked on the rest of the potion. Garlic juice, stir four times clockwise, wait till the potion loses its luster. When the sparrow had been rendered to its essence, Hermione took a moment to separate out the dross, and eventually added a scoop of that as well. Everything hurt, and she felt almost as short of breath as Fleur appeared to be. By the time the potion was ready to be bottled and stoppered for a brief leavening phase, Hermione was sweating, and she would have sworn that she had felt something crawl through her heart. She stumbled, then slipped. The floor rose up, turning vertical and slamming into her side, and she couldn't... couldn't... Hermione! Someone called. She coughed, and the wall was speckled red. Once more, Hermione tried to escape the grip of the wall. No, the floor. She was against the floor. But it didn't matter anyway. She couldn't feel anything in her left side, anything but the pain and the spiders. The fingers of her other hand tightened, spasming, and they clenched around something thin and hard. Oh, good, the vial hadn't broken. It was hard to move and hard to think, but out of the corner of her eye, Hermione looked at the vial, letting the time slip by and watching for it to change color, willing herself to remain conscious for just a little longer while the potion continued to its final stage. Someone, Fleur, Victor, both of them, helped her sit up, putting her back against the workstation, but Hermione's fingers remained tight around the vial. The time passed in blurry fits and moments. The potion was finally black and violet, just as it was supposed to be, but what felt like seconds must have been minutes, because Hermione knew how long the leavening stage was supposed to last. With all her strength, all that was left in her, she drew the vial to her mouth. She tugged the cork out with her teeth, slowly, weakly, then pressed the glass against her lips. The antidote poured into her mouth, thin and watery, harsh and bitter, and Hermione would have gagged had she the energy to do so. She swallowed, and then she passed out. When Hermione awoke, Madame Pomfrey was in front of her, wand in hand and looking attentively at Rackharrow, one of the medical magic students. A golden cord stretched out from one of his hands to the other, pinched between thumb and pointer finger at other end, and Rackharrow examined it from a few different angles. No complications, and he carefully looped up the thread and stowed it in a pocket. "'How do you feel, Miss Granger?' asked Madame Pomfrey. "'Better,' Hermione said. "'Much better.' Her clothes were still a little mussed up and bloody, but she couldn't notice a trace of her symptoms or spy a single spider on her robes. "'Do you need assistance standing?' asked Rackero. Hermione shook her head, then tried to stand, and found herself unable to do much more than shift where she was sitting. "'Some weakness in the extremities is to be expected. It should wear off in a minute.' "'Here,' Fleur said.' and Hermione whipped her head around so quickly that it hurt. 
There was still some dried blood around Fleur's mouth and on the collar of her robes, but she nevertheless looked as luminous as ever. It took a few seconds for Hermione to realize that Fleur was extending a hand to her. Hermione's arms still felt odd when she tried to move them, but she was able to get her right arm about level with her shoulder. And that was enough for Fleur, who took Hermione's hand and gave the bit of pole that Hermione needed to stand. She felt uneasy on her legs and fell a little into Fleur, who remained as steady as a pillar. "'Are you all right?' she asked. Hermione nodded, but continued to lean on Fleur. It was nice, and Fleur didn't seem to be complaining, and anyway her legs didn't feel entirely back to normal yet. That was a good decision all considered, because without Fleur to support her she might have fallen in shock when she saw Victor. Whereas Hermione felt, and Fleur looked close to normal, it was still obvious that something uncomfortable had happened to Victor. He had both his ears, but one eye was bloodshot, and the other socket just had some sort of gelatin-looking imitation eye that didn't move when the other did. His missing fingers were still missing, and his nose was discolored, but at least his prosthetic foot had been replaced with something better constructed. "'Victor, why are you still—are you going to be okay?' Hermione asked. "'Bones are tricky to grow back, even little ones.' "'Eyes also,' Victor said. "'I will be <coughs> healthy as a goat in a not very long. Mata did not want to be regrowing anything while points are awarded.' "'Points? Points?' Hermione exclaimed. "'That hasn't happened yet. How long did I make everyone wait?' "'You were out for a very short time, hardly five minutes.' Madame Pomfrey said. Once we ascertained that your antidote had fully taken effect, there was no reason not to cast a reviving charm on you. Griffiths appeared at the threshold of the entrance. If you're ready, would you like to come out now? With some reluctance, Hermione detached herself from Fleur and put all her weight on her own feet, then exited the block with Fleur and Victor. It wasn't too much brighter outside, so it didn't take more than a moment for her eyes to adjust. After Hermione took a few steps away from the block, Griffiths held up a hand. Hermione and the others stopped, and Griffiths said, with an amplified voice, "'One at a time. The judges will now issue their verdicts.' Professor Feo was the first to stand and speak. "'The three champions displayed tremendous teamwork together, and it is impossible to disentangle the efforts of one of them from the outcome of another,' she said. "'However, none of these outcomes were perfect,' and therefore none of them deserve a perfect score. I award nine points to each champion. Next to speak, but not to stand, was Senator Blagana. La Bobeto, she began. Without even straightening up in her seat, Blagana made a few intricate signs with her fingers, as if she were playing a one-handed string game with invisible string, then snapped them. A black six appeared above her, like a great shadow. Blood their own string? She snapped her fingers again, and there appeared a black ten. La Hogwarts! A final snap, displaying a three. And then Blagana seemed to lose all interest in the tournament and turned her eyes to the clouds. As Professor Feo had done before him, Lackenberg stood. Mr. Lecourt, I have no serious complaints about your performance, but you also failed to awe me. I have owed you seven points. Mr. Crumb? While you were mostly satisfactory, I believe that you will find there are less complicated combinations of substitutions than what you used, and I cannot award you more than five points. Miss Granger, your alchemical stomach was likewise flawed, but I cannot help but think that you had never before attempted such a thing, 
and it is hard to overlook your age in this situation, and yet... Lackenberg sighed, then smiled. I find myself in agreement with Professor Fayot. You were not perfect. I award you nine points. While all three champions were successful, their challenges were not equal, said Bagman. I award six points to Fleur Delacour, whose potion was less difficult than the others, he said. And at those words, Lackenberg peered up at him curiously. But to perform to no better, despite having an easier time. I award eight points to Victor Crumb, in large part due to his significant contributions to the group, like that trick with the blood. That's what I call thinking on your feet, or foot, as it were. Finally, I award ten points to Hermione Granger, who performed well above her years, and while suffering some horrifying things too. I'll never look at spiders the same, Bagman said. And he gave a mock shudder. When Matvago spoke, she seems to address her eye of providence as much as the champions or audience. The champions' efforts were adequate. I award five points each to Bobito and Hogwarts, and four points to Durmstrang. October was the next to speak. My own assessment was largely the same as friend Matvago's, though I find myself a little more generous in the awarding of points. Also, I think that more credit is due to Mr. Crumb's performance. The others had their own difficulties, but he was not in possession of a full set of body parts by the end of the task. I award six points each to Bobeton and Hogwarts, and eight points to Durmstrang. Madame Olympe was a tower beside her fellow judges even while sitting, but now, standing as they sat, she almost cast them into darkness. I award nine points to Bobeton, seven points to Durmstrang, and eight points to Hogwarts. Without further explanation, she sat back down. Delacour did as good a job as we could have expected. Satisfactory, but unimpressive. I awarded six points to her, said Karkaroff. Mr. Crumb's efforts were vital not just to his success, but to everyone else's. So that their successes were also his, I awarded him a full ten points. To Granger, who could not even remain conscious for the entire competition, I award only three points. At last, Riddle stood. Contrary to the low opinion of some of my fellow judges, he said, I found Miss Delacour's performance to be more than merely satisfactory. While a flower may not be as lurid as spiders in the blood, or as obviously horrifying as runaway organs, every rose has its thorns. And I'm rather certain that Miss Delacour suffered a great amount of pain today, and performed admirably nonetheless. I award nine points out of ten to her. As for Mr. Crumb, whose willingness to shed his own blood suggests that he will be a strong contender for the next two tasks, I award him eight points out of ten. Finally, I award ten points out of ten to Miss Granger, who impressed me greatly with her own ability to withstand the trials arrayed against her, and suffered no less than the others, Riddle said. You can take the witch out of Britain, but you evidently cannot take Britain out of the witch. For the full text of this and other stories by the same author, visit the archive of our own page of Call Me Saltisside. The music is Amon Ra by Day's Witch, under a Creative Commons license with assistance from 1T1.
If you would like to commission me to record a story, voiceover, or character, please get in touch with me using the contact information on my website, which is located at samgabrielvo.com. And there you can find other stories that I've read, as well as links to my Patreon page, to which I hope you consider subscribing to support me, and my Discord server, where I record things live for your enjoyment. And finally, as always, thank you for listening.